Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, I'm your host, Gary Parker. And uh, man, it's, it is just crazy out there. I hope you're all staying home and staying safe and staying healthy. It is really crazy out there right now <laughs> with all the all the virus stuff. And it's not going to get normal anytime soon. But I've still got plenty of things to talk about, some of which will be related to the virus. Uh, we're going to talk about how there's some fake Zoom app installers out there that you need to watch out for. And I've just got kind of a general update on Zoom. I really came down pretty hard on them last week. Uh, so I've got a little bit of an update on that. Got an interesting story about some smart locks. Things cost a hundred bucks and they are trivial to break into. Uh, it's kind of a good case study in how not to do security. Then we got a couple of topics to cover related to the coronavirus. And that is this Friday, last Friday, Google and Apple just made a big announcement that they will be collaborating on a new system on both Android and iOS devices that will be compatible between the two to allow for supposedly private contact tracing. And if you haven't heard that term yet, this is the term we use when, you know, when when someone is infected and we and they find out later that they're infected, we need to go back and figure out everybody that they were near in the last 14 days because those people might be infected too. That's that process of, of finding out who you've been in contact with is called contact tracing. This is going to be tricky, but they're trying to do this in a privacy preserving way. And we're going to talk about that. And then finally, for all of us now that are working from home, which hopefully is everybody. And if you're able to work from home, I guess that is, we're going to go through some basic security tips for working from home. And I ran across a good article on this. And even though technically it's about working from home, really this applies to just about everybody. So uh, anyway, but we're going to go through some good security tips. It's always good to review these things. And I uh, found an article with a really nice list, and I've kind of taken that as the starter and added my own little twist to it. So that'll end up with our tip of the week. So let's not waste any time. Let's get into it. All right, so... Obviously, Zoom has gotten really popular, and one of the reasons it's so popular is it's just so easy. It's free. It works well. So, you know, what's what's not to like? Well, it turns out that there's a lot not to like, and I went over a lot of that last week. And if you go to my website, you can, you can also read an article I wrote there about it. And they've got a lot of security and privacy problems, and a lot of them were just really bad rookie mistakes. I'm, you know, these people were not doing security correctly or privacy. They... But in retrospect, and after, you know, the, the CEO came out and apologized and said they're going to be cracking down on this. And, you know, I, I believe that they're going to try. So we've got to give, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll see what happens. We'll see how they re respond to this. They are putting together a team of crack security experts, and they really are security experts. I read through the read through the list. They're, they're smart people. Uh, they've committed to, you know, privacy and and removing a lot of the things they supposedly accidentally put in that were allowing LinkedIn and Facebook to get information and uh, leak information to other people. And so they're, they're trying. I still recommend you, you try Jitsi, J-I-T-S-I. -I, give it a try. It's totally free and open source. It's, as far as I can tell, it's just as easy to use as Zoom, uh, but it's a lot more secure. It's truly ended encrypted. And as an open source freeware project, they have no desire to learn anything about you. That's it. If you are using Zoom, you know, make sure you're using basic security practices. You're, you know, taking advantage of all the, the the security and privacy options that they have, like setting a password on your meetings. I think that's now become the default. It wasn't the default before. Uh, you could set up a, a waiting room, uh, which means that you get to approve everybody that comes into the meeting. Uh, and then you can lock the room after that so that nobody else can get in. Part of the problem Zoom was having is their meeting IDs were so easy to guess and they had no security on them that people were... 
you know, just going through numbers and finally guessing some of these things and dropping into other people's meetings. Uh, it's even got a term now. It's called Zoom bombing, which is a takeoff of the other uh, term, photo bombing, where people, you know, get in the background of your pictures and do stuff that messes up your picture. Anyway, so there are things you can do to make Zoom more secure and uh, make sure you review those things and set up as many as you can so that when you're doing these things, they are still secure. But I want to talk about another aspect to security related to Zoom. And that is, this is really honestly true of anything that just gets virally popular. And of course, <laughs> going viral today has a little bit of a different meaning, <laughs> but in the marketing sense of going viral, Zoom went viral. It, it's a, you know, it was a huge hit there. They went from 10 million users to 200 million users in, I don't know, weeks. It's just crazy. So undoubtedly you have heard about Zoom and you've at this point probably participated in some sort of a Zoom conference. Well, if you're installing the software, you got to be careful where you get it from. And mainly, and this is true of any software you download, always go to the source. Go directly to, in this case, zoom.us. It's a strange, it's a strange name. It's not a .com or a .org or a .net. It's .us. So zoom.us, that's the official site. And make sure that if you install anything uh, Zoom-related, that you get it from that site directly. Because if not, you stand the chance of installing uh, some other nasty stuff. And uh, here's an article from Bleeping Computer that tells you uh, what I'm talking about. And it says, attackers are taking advantage of the increased popularity of the Zoom video conferencing service to distribute installers that are bundled with malware and adware applications. As people are spending more time indoors and performing physical social distancing, many have started using Zoom meetings for remote work, exercise classes, and virtual get-togethers. Knowing this, threat actors have started distributing Zoom client installers bundled with malware, such as coin miners, remote access trojans, and adware bundles. And I'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. Today, Trend Micro reports that they have found a Zoom installer being distributed that will also install a cryptocurrency miner on the victim's computer. And this is a quote from uh, Trend Micro. They say, We found a coin miner bundled with the legitimate installer of video conferencing app Zoom, luring users who want to, use, to install the software but end up unwittingly downloading a malicious file. The compromised files are not from Zoom's official download center and are assumed to come from fraudulent websites. We have been working with Zoom to ensure that they are able to, con to communicate this to their users appropriately, unquote. So when installed, this malware will attempt to use your GPU or CPU. Uh, GPU is your graphics processing unit. CPU is your computing processing unit. These are basically the brains of modern computers. To mine for Monero cryptocurrency, which will cause your computer to become slower, potentially overheat, and potentially damage the hardware on your computer. Now I'll stop there. I, it doesn't have to do all those things. In fact, most of these crypto mining things that are trying to use your computer's brain power to generate um, cryptocurrency, because it takes a lot of processing power to do this, uh, generally just, you know, make your computer work harder. Yeah, I guess I guess potentially they might overheat, but they usually don't want to be discovered. So a lot of them try to fly under the radar and only make it, you know, use a little bit of resources, not so much that you might call attention to it. But anyway, yeah, that's possible. All right, back to the article. Other Zoom client installers found by Bleeping Computer are being distributed with unwanted software bundles or remote access trojans. For example, the, the below Zoom installer, and it shows a picture here, it looks like a common kind of install screen, is targeting German, German users with unwanted offers along with the Zoom client. In other words, if, you, if your installer comes up and actually says to you that it's got other offers and other things it wants to install, you know you're in trouble. Just quit. Back out. Don't do it. Then it goes on. It says another malicious Zoom installer will install the NJ Rat Remote Access Trojan, otherwise known as Bladabindi, which weird word, that will give the attacker full access to the infected victim's computer. This would allow the hacker to steal your data, take screenshots with your webcam, or execute commands to download and install other malware. As most of these malware samples ultimately install the Zoom client, users are not aware that other malicious applications were installed on their computer as well. 
To prevent this, always download the Zoom client from the official Zoom download section, or when prompted by a Zoom meeting invite on the zoom.us site. Downloading from any other location greatly increases the chance you will become infected. Okay, and again, that, honestly, that applies for any software, uh, but in particular this one because it's so popular right now, and most people probably don't have it installed yet uh, because it wasn't it wasn't really that popular until recently. So it, it mentioned a remote access Trojan or a rat. So it, Trojan is in Trojan horse. So it tricks you basically into installing something on your computer, and then once installed on your computer, it lets the other bad guys in, just like the classic Trojan horse from history. So all this to say, go always go to the source when you're installing something. I would even say if you're on a website and you get a pop-up saying, please install this thing or whatever, that can even be dangerous too. I would I would just quit that and go straight to Zoom and install it uh, from the Zoom site because there's too many websites that, that have these things that pop up and say you need software. And whenever that happens, it's almost surely malware. Now, in the case of a Zoom invite, yes, if you don't have the software installed and you click the link to start the meeting, it will pop up and say, hey, you don't have you know Zoom installed. Would you like to install it? That should be okay. Uh, but just don't get in the habit of doing that for everything that pops up. And again, if you're if you just want to be ultra safe, just close that, go to zoom.us, find their uh, app installer, install it, and then click the link, and then it'll just work. All right. Next up, I want to talk about the <laughs> this this article about a smart lock. Um, and you've you certainly have seen these things. They're everything smart now, right? So now they've got these little padlocks you can buy that either open by a fingerprint or with a smartphone app or both. And claim to be all sorts of super secure, way more secure than your old, you know, gym locker style <laughs> dial padlocks or key based padlocks. And just because they cost a hundred bucks, folks, doesn't mean, <laughs> does not mean they're secure. Uh, so this is kind of a good case study in how not to do this and, and how to just to be wary of marketing claims and specifically smart locks in general. It's hard to get this right. And uh, I would not go blowing a lot of money on a smart lock unless it solves some other weird problem you have, but Anyway, you can make the decision after you, after I read this article to you. This is from Ars Technica. A padlock, whether it uses a combination of key or smart tech, has exactly one job, to keep your stuff safe so other people can't get it. TapLock Incorporated, based in Canada, produces such a product. The company's locks unlock with a fingerprint or an app connected by Bluetooth to your phone. Unfortunately, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, said the locks are full of both digital and physical vulnerabilities that leaves users' stuff and data at risk. Note that it said stuff and data, so it's not just it's not just the thing that's locked that's in trouble, it's actually your data as well. So it's even worse than a bad lock. All right, let's keep going. The FTC's complaint against TapLock, released Monday, this would be a week ago now, basically alleges that the company misrepresented itself because it's marketed its products as secure and tested when they were neither. A product, any product, simply being kind of crappy doesn't necessarily fall under the FTC's purview. Saying untrue things about your product in your advertisement or privacy policy, however, will make the commission very unhappy with you indeed. TapLock's advertisements say its flagship product, the TapLock One, can store up to 500 user fingerprints and can be connected to a quote-unquote unlimited number of devices through the app. A design optimized for something that many people need to be able to access, but for which handing off a physical key is impractical. To make the $99 lock work, TapLock collects a great deal of personal information on its users, including usernames, email addresses, profile photos, location history, and precise location of a user's lock. According to the complaint, TapLock's privacy policy promised, quote, We take reasonable precautions and follow industry best practices to make sure personal information is not inappropriately lost, misused, accessed, disclosed, altered, or destroyed, unquote. However, almost a year ago, in June of 2018, three separate security researchers identified, quote, critical physical and electronic vulnerabilities, unquote, in the locks. 
The lock may be built with, and this is a quote from their marketing stuff, it says, 7mm reinforced stainless steel shackles strengthened by double-layered lock design with anti-shim and anti-pry technologies, unquote, as Taplock's website promises. But according to the FTC, perhaps it should have considered anti-screwdriver technologies. As it turns out, a researcher was able to unlock the lock within a matter of seconds by unscrewing the back panel. Oops. The complaint also pointed to several reasonably foreseeable future vulnerabilities that the FTC alleges Taplock could have avoided if the company, quote, had implemented simple, low-cost steps, unquote. One vulnerability security researchers identified allowed users to bypass the account authentication process entirely in order to gain full access to the account of literally any Taplock user, including their personal information. And how could that happen? And this is a quote from the FTC complaint that says, Quote, a researcher who logged in with a valid user credential could then access another user's account without being redirected back to the login page, thereby allowing the researcher to circumvent the authentication procedures altogether, unquote. So let me stop, let me stop right there. And I've seen this happen other places. This has been a security problem otherwise. So they build this login security thing where you, you have to go through and give them your username and password to get to your account, and then you get into your account. And then once you've got this security token... Uh, which is what happens when you log in. It drops a cookie on your device that says you're 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 legit, you're okay. But you've got to make sure you keep enforcing that if you try to access someone else's account. And so basically, let's say you go to taplock.com slash cbparker, and that that's your account. So you've logged in, you're cool. If I knew someone else's uh, someone else's account name and I just changed cbparker to Joe Smith, I could get straight into Joe Smith's account without without having to log in with Joe Smith's, Joe Smith's credentials. That's basically what they're saying here. All right, back to the article. It says, a second vulnerability allowed researchers the ability to access and unlock any lock they could get close enough to with a working Bluetooth connection. That's because TapLock failed to encrypt the Bluetooth communication between the lock and the app, leaving the data wide open for researchers to discover and replicate. And I'll stop again there. So when you've got your smartphone and you're walking up to the smart lock and you bring out your TapLock app and say, unlock, and there's a little wireless Bluetooth communication between your app and your uh, and the lock, that communication was not encrypted. It was not secure. So anybody close enough to to sniff that Bluetooth communication, which now that would have to be probably, what, 30 feet, I think, or something like that. Nevertheless, if someone was close enough for you to do that, if I really wanted to get into your lock, then I might hide nearby, wait for you to come up to your lock, and, and I would be able to basically record the credentials that unlock your lock over Bluetooth, and then I would be able to get into that same lock as well. All right, finishing up the article. The third vulnerability outlined in the complaint also has to do with the failure to secure communication data. That app that allows, quote-unquote, unlimited connections, the primary owner, of course, can add and revoke authorized users for the lock. But someone whose access was revoked could still access the lock because the vulnerability allowed for sniffing out the relevant data packets. I think that's actually the same thing as the previous one. And how did TapLock fail to discover any of these weaknesses? Because the company did not have a security program prior to the third-party researcher's discovery, the FTC alleges. The settlement, in which TapLock does not admit to any wrongdoing, requires the company to create and provide extensive documentation of a security program for its products. That program is required to include training for employees, timely disclosures of covered incidents, quote-unquote, including both loss of personal information and other authorized access to systems, actual penetration testing of the network, and several other elements, including an annual review. Now, honestly, I think every company should have to do this. Any company that makes a security claim should live up to those basic minimum standards. Uh, but in this case, the FTC got involved because they advertised that they had these things when they didn't, and that's kind of the FCC's thing. You know, if you, you, know, if you say that you do this and you don't, they're going to come down on you. 
But my takeaway from this, and the, why, the reason I want to bring this up, you may or may not have this lock. You may not may or may not have any smart locks. But the point is to beware of company marketing. They can, you know, they'll whip out all sorts of great terms and make it sound all technical and, you know, military-grade encryption, yada, yada, yada. Just take away the grain of salt and definitely try to find some reviews of that product elsewhere before you buy it at a bare minimum. And if it's any device that has, you know, that's security focused, you know, try to get those reviews from security oriented websites, not, you know, sites that are just marketing. Oh, this is a cool new lock. All right. Now for a couple things related to the virus, because it's obviously ever present in our lives today and will be in some form or another for quite a while from now. Uh, and that's good. That's an important thing to consider. Uh, even when, you know, we've gone to the downside of the curve and, you know, we're starting to get, you know, get ahead of things and fewer people are getting infected because we're doing, you know, the social distancing, you know, and honestly, until we have a vaccine for this, we're going to have to be doing some form of, you know, social distancing and all these things we're doing now on some level are going to probably continue until we have a vaccine in hand. It's probably going to come in waves, you know, though at some point we'll get back to, you know, somewhat back to work. But, you know, we, for instance, we may, they may come up with a test that says that, you know, you definitely had it and have recovered, so therefore are no longer susceptible to it. And, you know, it may be that those people get some sort of a waiver. You know, uh, I've heard I've heard talk of like some sort of a little card uh, that you can, you know, carry with you that says, you know, I'm, I'm good and I'm allowed to work. And those people can go back to work and other people maybe can't. I don't know. But we're in totally uncharted territory here. So we're just going to have to see how this plays out. But my point is we need to be thinking ahead now because we're only in phase one of this. There's going to be multiple phases after this that we're going to have to think about. And they're going to suggest all sorts of, you know, technical solutions to this stuff that essentially amount to mass surveillance. And we're going to have to be really careful what those things are and what we allow because it's going to be really hard to pull them back when we're done. I mean, look at all the things we instituted after 9-11 that are still around that, you know, maybe at the time were said to be temporary measures, uh, I mean, the whole TSA thing, the whole liquids and, you know, <laughs> no more than three ounces of liquid, take off your shoes and belt, you know, all these things that have come around since then that we're all familiar with when we travel never went away. And that was, that was 19 years ago. So anyway, just, just know that anything we do may be around for a lot longer. So with that in mind, I want to read uh, about this one particular new technology coming around for contact tracing. And I talked about that earlier. So again, contact tracing is... You know, trying to figure out, okay, once I know that this person infected, since it takes, you know, roughly 7 to 14 days uh, for symptoms to, be, to become obvious after you've been infected, that potentially means that anybody you've been around in the last 7 to 14 days has now been infected as well. So through contact tracing, people you've had contact with, tracing the people you've had contact with, they can try to get an idea of who, other, who else might be in trouble and at least to have them self-quarantine until they're sure that they're okay. And not, you know, and not spread it yet to more people. So, you know, that's that's what you need to do when you're trying to stop the spread of a virus. So with all of our technology, there are some ways that we could do contact tracing. And many of them are bad, uh, at least in terms of civil liberties and uh, and privacy. And some of them are doing their best to be good. And this is one of them. And uh, I want to read this to you, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Okay, so this is from Vox, and a lot of people have covered this story, but Friday, which to you would be a few days ago, uh, there was a big announcement from Apple and Google, and they've decided to work together on some technology um, that will help with um, coronavirus you know, contact tracing. 
Uh, let me read you from this article, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Just when you were wondering why the world's biggest tech companies weren't doing more to fight the coronavirus pandemic, Apple and Google made a big announcement. They are joining forces to build an opt-in contact tracing tool using Bluetooth technology that would help public health officials track the spread of COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus. The new tool brings with it not only hope for a quicker end to the pandemic, but also a host of privacy and security concerns. In the first phase of the tool's release, which will start around mid-May, Google and Apple re will release the APIs, or Application Programming Interfaces. We've talked about those in the before. That's how basically how computers and software talk to each other. Uh, we'll release the API so that public health authorities can then build apps that will be publicly available in the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. People can choose to download these apps, and again, these apps will let iPhones and Android phones talk to each other. The tool's second phase will roll out over the next several months. Apple and Google plan to build contact tracing functionality into the operating systems of the phones themselves, which might sound a little tricky for folks who worry about being tracked without their consent. As the New York Times points out, by building the tool directly into the operating system, Apple and Google effectively ensure that contact tracing system will run 24 hours a day rather than only when the particular app is open. To protect users' privacy, Apple and Google say they will build this system while keeping people's identities anonymous throughout the process. That's because the companies say they won't build a database of who has COVID-19 and whom they've been in contact with. Instead, they'll store that information in temporary anonymous cryptographic keys that refresh every 15 minutes. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit later. Meanwhile, all participants in contact tracing will be opt-in, and both companies say they plan to release regular reports on the program's progress. In announcing this new initiative, both Apple and Google have stressed that users have to consent to participate in contact tracing, that the apps won't collect personally identifiable information, and that people who test positive aren't identified to anyone else. Just how long will Apple and Google leave these contact tracing tools embedded in their mobile operating systems? After all, if this technology can be used to track who you've been in contact with, it seems possible that it could also be co-opted for commercial purposes or even government surveillance. And yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that is the big worry. Okay, now let, how does this thing work? And they, they talk about it, and then I'll, I'll let me read their explanation, and then I'll kind of give you my uh, spin on it. So here's how it works. Alice and Bob meet each other for the first time while sitting on a bench for a brief conversation. Because they've installed the new Apple and Google technology, their phones exchange anonymized tracing keys. And you could think of these as a contact info file with a unique identifier instead of a person's contact info. These keys indicate that Alice and Bob have been in contact, and because they've opted in to the Apple and Google contact tracing system, this exchanging of keys happens automatically. A few days later, Bob finds out that he's positively diagnosed with COVID-19, and he updates an app with that information. With Bob's consent, the app then sends an alert to everyone with whom Bob exchanged keys in the last 14 days. Alice is one of these folks, so she gets a notification that she's been in contact with someone who is COVID-19 positive. The notification also includes information about what Alice should do next, like go get tested herself. Okay, so let, let's start with that first, how this really works. And if you followed that, it's actually pretty clever. And this doesn't actually get into all the details of what's going on here. But here's what's basically going on. As you're walking around, your phone uh, has a Wi-Fi radio and a Bluetooth radio and a cellular radio, by the way. And they're, they're constantly broadcasting and receiving, even if they're not in contact with the Bluetooth device, even if they're not in contact with Wi-Fi, it's constantly looking around to see, hey, is there a Wi-Fi network here? If so, I want to be ready to present that to my user if he wants to connect to Wi-Fi. Same thing kind of with Bluetooth. So part of these communications, these pings, these kind of like beacons, these signals, these things send out, comes with it a unique identifier. 
And, you know, we've kind of kind of gotten smart enough to not have that unique identifier be the same forever. We kind of rotate through these identifiers and we pick really big numbers that, that won't repeat. And we find a really good random way of picking one. And then we broadcast that ID. And so what these apps are going to do is listen for these broadcasts IDs. So if you're, your phone and their phone are nearby and they're both broadcasting these keys, it'll say, okay, okay, there's Bob's key. And then Alice's device will broadcast and Bob will get Alice's key. Now there's no name involved. They don't know who that, they don't know who that ID belongs to. Your phones can't figure that out or don't. <laughs> that is actually a big difference there. It, we have to believe that they don't, then they could, but they, they're saying they don't. And so all you store is this number, this really big, long, random number. And that number belongs to Bob and Alice, depending on which phone you're on. So what you're doing as you walk around throughout your day is anybody you get close enough to that your Bluetooth uh, radio can hear their broadcasted ID value, you store that value, just throw it in a bucket. And then what happens later is let's say one of those people that you've come in contact with determines that they are sick. They've got, they've got COVID-19. They, through this app say, okay, I've got it. Let anybody know that was near me in the last 14 days that they might want to get checked. And so here, here's the crucial part. So what this app does at that point is it says, okay, here's all the people, here's all the keys from everybody I've come close to in the last 14 days. So from Bob's case, that's going to include Alice's key. One of Alice's many keys, because she's, you know, over the last 14 days, she's generated several. But when they were close together, Alice generated this particular ID and Bob's phone picked it up. And so Bob says, I'm infected. Here's all the keys for the people that I was close to in the last 14 days and, and, and sends these up to some sort of a cloud service somewhere. So Alice, uh, using her device, and it probably checks in the background automatically, maybe once a day goes up and say, Hey, has anybody seen any of the keys that I have generated in the last 14 days? Cause she's, she's kept a list of all the keys that she's generated for the last 14 days as well, her device. And if, if, if she finds, unfortunately that, Oh yes, somebody who is in contact with me or close enough with me to grab one of my keys has loaded that key up on the server somewhere. Now I know that I was in contact with somebody in the last 14 days that has been infected. And I don't, it's not clear yet whether or not we'll have the idea of like, it could maybe record how long you were in contact. That might be interesting to know. Like if I just passed somebody on a subway, like I, you know, so my device heard that ID from that person for like 30 seconds. That might be interesting to know as opposed to 30 minutes. Cause I was, you know, in a store and waiting in line or whatever by this person that that might make a difference. Also maybe location or date. You know, when did this happen? If this happened 14 days ago, you know, or 13 days ago, then I might feel a little bit better, you know, cause I haven't felt sick yet anyway. So there might be other information that comes with those keys as well, which could be a privacy problem. But anyway, that, that's kind of how this works. And it's kind of clever, right? So, you know, the, the information that's posted has nobody's name associated with it. The only, the only other person who knows what that, who that key belongs to is Alice, uh, her device, because it generated that key and remembered that it had generated that key when it sees the that key being posted uh, up in this cloud service somewhere. Only Alice knows that that's her or Alice's smartphone and Alice's app, which again, you have to trust the app at this point. And that that's another crucial linchpin to this whole thing. So if that, if you didn't quite follow that, let's, uh, I thought of an analogy as I was reading this, that might make a little more sense. You know, those raffle tickets that, you know, that you buy for, 
you know, something at your school or, or some of, you know, some local party you're going to, and it's that big roll of tickets and there's two halves and every one of those tickets has got a unique number on it. Right. And there's two halves. So you rip off, you rip the ticket in half. Each half has the same ID on it. And you put one in the jar and you keep the other one. And then when they pull a ticket out at the end of the day, they read the ticket number and you have the other half, you won the prize, right? <laughs> In this case, winning the prize means that you were near somebody who was sick. So that's kind of what we're doing. Everyone's kind of carrying around a roll of these tickets. And it's whenever you meet someone, you rip off a ticket and you give them half. And you put the other half, you know, in a bucket. And then they give you a ticket, half of their ticket. And, you know, you put their half of the ticket in a separate bucket, the bucket of people I have met. And then when you later find out you're sick, you go through the, the bucket of everybody you've met. And you dump out all the numbers and, uh, and the cloud service provides this. There's basically a way to say, here are all the winning numbers. <laughs> here, here are all the people that, that met me in the last 14 days. And if you look at your ticket and you have one of the, if you have a ticket with that number on it, you know, you met somebody recently who was infected. So anyway, I've already, you know, I've already alluded to some of the problems with, I mean, for example, they said, this is opt-in. What if the government makes it not opt-in? And some governments have already done this around the world. Um, they're forcing people to do this. Uh, you know, so what if, what if it becomes non-optional? They say it's optional. What if it becomes non-optional? And honestly, there's problems either way. Because if it's non-optional, how many people are actually going to do this? If you don't get enough people doing it, it's really not going to be effective. Which might make a government make it mandatory. Also, if they're going to actually build this into the operating system at that low of a level, I mean... That does mean that at some point they have to remove it and you have to trust that they're going to remove it. And remember, at least in the United States, and that uh, there are ways for the government to enforce security laws in such a way that the people they're enforcing them on are not allowed to talk about it. Uh, they also say that they're not going to build a database of who has COVID-19. So if the app is following exactly what we just said it was going to do, when it reports, hey, I'm infected, the only information that should be associated with that is the list of people that I was in contact with, the IDs for the people I was in contact with. So there's no names associated with that. But there's nothing preventing your operating system or that app or whatever from leaking information about you somehow, which would associate you with those numbers, which would mean that there would be some public database somewhere of everybody who's infected. And then realize that it doesn't even have to be the app that does this, right? Your phone is already a tracking device. Your cellular provider, AT&T, Verizon, whoever, they already know where you are all the time. And that's not, that's not the least bit private. Governments and, uh, and law enforcement use this all the time. So if your you know, AT&T or Verizon notices that you just notified the supposedly private service that you're infected, well, they could figure that out. Now, if, if it's encrypted and yada, 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 there's probably ways to make it work. I'm just saying there's a lot of ways this could go bad. So while they've obviously done some really great work in trying to make the technology as private as possible, and it's really clever, it all comes down to the implementation. And there's got to be transparency. There's got to be full open kimono, <laughs> as, we, as we like to say, access to everything they're doing so that it could be vetted by third parties. And then it's got to be taken away when this is all done. It's got to, this has got to be strictly temporary and the data that they keep needs to be flushed frequently uh you know every 30 or 45 days you know that data is no longer useful so just flush it but again this is all on our system we this is all requiring all these parties to do what they're supposed to do uh, and not screw up and even if it's not malicious they could screw up so a lot of ways this could go wrong and this is just a cautionary tale to remind you that there's going to be a lot of these things proposed uh, in the next weeks and months. And we've got to be very, very careful of what we allow to happen. It's got to be minimal, 
absolutely as minimal, just to get the least amount of data possible to get the desired effect. That data needs to be removed as soon as it's no longer useful. Personal identifiable information needs to be kept at an absolute minimum, hopefully zero. And this program needs to end. It needs to have a sunset, a hard sunset. Like it's the default, like this will happen, like build it into the operating system that this software will be automatically deleted at some future date. And we could extend that, but with, if nothing else happens, it automatically goes away. Those are the kind of things we need to be thinking about as these proposals invariably will be floated in the next little while. All right. So let's get to the tip of the week. Um, and this, I ran across this, I think on Twitter and it's from some company I've never heard of called doist.com, D-O-I-S-T. Uh, I don't know who they are, or what they do, but they published a nice little list of some general security tips. And so I took that list and kind of modified it a little bit. Uh, for those of us working from home, uh, you may have your corporate laptop or your corporate uh, phone, uh, now at home and trying to do work on those devices. Now, if you work for a big company, they've probably got all the security stuff all figured out and you're already know what to do. But if you're working for a smaller company, you know, maybe they really don't have their act together or really know what to do. Uh, and honestly, these, these tips that I'm about to give you really apply to everybody every day anyway, but they, you know, as you're working from home, you know, maybe you're working with sensitive company data instead of just your own data. So they have a little bit more, a little more, oomph, a little more meaning for you right now. So I'm going to run through a list of, uh, options here. And I'm going to go through them rather quickly. I don't have time to explain them all. Obviously, a lot of these are covered in my book. And there's also websites for these things, too. And honestly, if you just go to doist.com, you'll probably find this article. And there's some links in there as well. All right, so let's go through this list. There's about 10 things here, uh, nine, actually. So first of all, encrypt your devices. Uh, and that includes, by the way, everything we're talking about here includes both mobile and uh, computers, your, your laptops, your desktops, iPhones, tablets, iPads, all that stuff. This includes all that stuff. So very briefly, on a Mac... It, uh, all modern Macs come with something called File Vault, and I believe it's all on to by default now, so you should be good to go if you've got a modern Mac. But you can always go into System Preferences and uh, go into Privacy and Security and look for File Vault and make sure that's turned on. On Windows, uh, the article recommended using BitLocker, but unfortunately BitLocker does not come with Windows 10 Home, which is just a travesty. They really, <laughs> That really needs to be table stakes. This should be on everything. But anyway, so if you don't have Pro or Enterprise or whatever the fancier, more expensive version of Windows 10 is that comes with BitLocker, you can look up another thing called VeraCrypt, V-E-R-A-C-R-Y-P-T. And you can go to veracrypt.fr. I think that's France. Veracrypt.fr is their website. Uh, it's free and it's very powerful. Uh, entire disk encryption technology that if you uh, if you don't have BitLocker, that, that's a great alternative. And all modern Android and iOS devices are all encrypted by default, so you're already good there as long as you've got a modern phone. And if you don't, that's a great uh, reason to upgrade. And by modern, I think uh, this is probably done in the last three, four years at least. Now, uh, for your operating system, and again, this includes both your computer operating system and your mobile phone operating system, make sure you keep it up to date. There are security bugs found all the time. There have been some found recently, several in Windows 10, as a matter of fact. And it's some in uh, Apple iOS, iOS and in Mac OS. So uh, with these, especially when these security, the, the security updates are usually like the, the dot release. We call them dot releases because there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of periods in them. So if it's like, you know, 10.13.1 and now there's a 10.13.2, that's probably a security update. Those smaller releases definitely take those. Now, if you're going from like, you know, 10.13 to 10.14, those are much bigger things. Usually for those, I'll wait like a, you know, a few days to a week because most of those are just new features. Though a lot of times they come with security stuff as well. So install them soon, 
but you know, you might wait a couple days at least to make sure there's no major problems because there have been major problems lately with operating system releases. But keep an eye on it and keep up to date because that is very important. And the same goes for applications as well. So your key software applications, the key apps on your on your smartphones, the ones that are the, the ones that are the most popular and the ones that are built in, those are the ones the hackers going to go for because everyone's got them. So, you know, Microsoft Office, you know, Excel, Word, PowerPoint, uh, all of those, Outlook, your web browsers, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge. And by the way, if you're using Internet Explorer, stop. <laughs> go get Firefox or something else. Internet Explorer should be not used by anybody anymore. The other common one that's that, that hackers like to go for are PDF readers, in particular Adobe's PDF reader. Don't use that. I would definitely not. I mean, you know, if you've got some business reason to use it because you need to edit PDFs or something like that, you may be stuck with it. Uh, there are some other ones that you could look at, though. There's one called Sumatra PDF. Uh, it's free. Uh, it's very bare bones. And there's another one called Nitro uh, PDF, which does cost money, and that might be a better replacement for Adobe. On a Mac, of course, you could use, use you know, built-in preview app, which is pretty good. And honestly, on, on any system, uh, a web browser. Almost all web browsers will render a PDF file. So if you just want to you know, drag and drop that PDF file onto your Firefox or Chrome or whatever, it'll open it and read it too. And because most browsers are sandboxed and have some built-in protections, it's actually a little bit, uh, gives you a little extra layer of security going that way. All right, next up, dis disable automatic login on your smartphones. Make sure you set a pin code on those and also on your laptops as well. Make sure you set a, uh, a password on those and make sure that they kick in in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, on a mobile phone, you might have that kick in. It probably does this automatically, you know, in seconds, you know, 15, 30 seconds, something like that. On a laptop, you know, five minutes maybe. Uh, it might be a reasonable amount of time to have your your screensaver kick in and the lock and to lock down. Uh, also, you know, if your phone if your phone supports it, you know, biometrics is is fine. Fingerprint or Face ID, those are fine too. Just make sure that there's some sort of protection on it. Uh, next up, use a password manager. Humans are horrible at remembering stuff, and they're just not up to the task of remembering good passwords. If it's good enough for you to remember, it's probably not a good one, especially if you've got to remember a hundred of them, a hundred different ones, because you need to use a different password for every different thing. And because we're bad at that, we tend to like come up with what we think is one good password and use it everywhere. That's, that's a horrible practice. So the way you get around that is use a password manager, and the password manager can generate crazy random passwords that you'll never remember, and no one will ever be able to guess, and they'll remember them for you. And then all you have to do is come up with one good master password for your vault. As always, you know, I usually recommend LastPass. It's great. The free version will do uh, what most people need in all situations, including mobile phones. But there are some other really good ones, too. You might look at 1Password. That's uh, literally the number 1 and then Password. Uh, or there's a new one that I I'm really need to look at myself. It's all free and open source uh, called Bitwarden, B-I-T-W-A-R-D-E-N. All of these basically do the same thing. So, you know, find one that looks right to you with the right, right price for you, that works on the right devices to, for you, and though all three of the ones I just mentioned should work on Android, iOS, Mac, and PC. Next up. Use two-factor authentication on as many accounts as you can. And this is becoming a lot more popular. And there's two ways that most of them do it now. Uh, they'll either send you... All of them are work around like a one-time PIN code or and a, a short-lived PIN code. It only lasts for a certain amount of time. And they will either text that to you, send it to your mobile phone by a text message, or you install a particular app which you synchronize with the service by scanning a QR code. That's kind of like that square barcode, those kind of funky new barcodes. You scan that with the app, and then it, it synchronizes. And from that point on, that app 
will generate like a, usually a six-digit code every 30 seconds. And because you're synchronized, the, the, the server knows what that code should be right now too. So at a certain time of day, when it asks you to give your code and you give the code from the app, it knows the right code to expect. Now, for that two-factor authentication app, a lot of people will use Google Authenticator, and a lot of uh, services talk about Google Authenticator. Uh, however, I would use one called Authy instead, A-U-T-H-Y. Uh, it does the same kind of thing. Uh, but the nice thing with Authy is it will, uh, you can set a password on that and, and securely synchronize that to multiple devices. And the nice thing about that is, and I got burned by this myself when I was using Google, Google Authenticator, is if you lose your device or it gets destroyed or it becomes unusable, uh, with Google, there's no way to back up those codes. Uh, so now you have to figure out some way to disable two-factor authentication on every service you had it enabled for, which is hard to do because it's supposed to be hard to do without having the pin code. That would be a real, real pain in the butt to do. Uh, whereas with Authy, if that happens, then you just sign into your account again and whatever new devices you have or secondary device, if you've got more than one, will get all the same codes and you can use a different device for that. One other pro tip if you're doing that, uh, if you want to be super paranoid about that, whenever you're uh, using these Authy codes and you're scanning the QR codes, I print those uh, physically on paper. <laughs> it's like So usually you're at a web page, like you're at you know google.com and you're in their privacy security section and you've got the QR code up on the screen. Because you can't get that you can't get that code back after you've scanned it. You can't go back into Google and show that exact same code again. You have to get a new code, and I think to do that you have to turn it off and back on again. So anyway, you, you're given this code once. So you know now Authy should save it, but if you want to uh, really back that up and have a secondary um, backup in that belt and suspenders, uh, print that page. Uh, it'll have a QR code on it, and that way, and just file it away in some middle folder or somewhere safe. And if you ever get in a situation where you need to sync up that code again. And for some reason, Authy is not working for you. You can actually find that piece of paper and scan it again, and you'll be in sync. And if you have a choice between this or SMS, definitely do the app version, the, the QR code version. It's much more secure. SMS is really not terribly secure. It's better than nothing. Um, but if you have a choice, definitely go with the QR code and use uh, Authy. All right, next up, and these are kind of related. And a lot of modern devices, both computers and certainly smart devices, have this capability now. Uh, you can set up a Find My Device thing. Um, and that is a way for your device to kind of communicate with the cloud, uh, kind of its current location. And if for some reason you ever lose it or it's stolen, it can report its location. You can find out where it is. I use this myself. When my family and I went on a trip to LA a few years back, I lost my smartphone on a ride. And that night, and after telling them where, you know, where I thought it was, I was able to actually look it up on the on the web through iCloud and, and see that they see where it was and see that they found it. Cause I saw it move. Uh, I saw my device move from where the ride was to the front office. So I was very happy. And the next day I was able to get it back. So anyway, uh, these are very powerful for one of two reasons. First of all, it can help you find a lost or stolen device. And also the same thing usually in a lot of cases allows you to remotely wipe that device. So, um, if it's stolen and you don't think there's any way you're going to get it back, you can remotely remove your data from it. Now, of course, if it's encrypted, this should be safe anyway, but still, it's kind of nice to have this capability. So uh, for Windows, uh, you go into Settings, uh, Update and Security, and there's a Find My Device option there. Uh, you can set it up there. And Mac OS, you set up iCloud first, which is almost impossible not to these days. Uh, and then you go into Settings under your name, iCloud, and then Find My Mac. You can set that up there. Uh, for Android, you can set up a Google account on your device, and then I guess that's able, enabled by default. The Find My thing is enabled by default. default. You don't have to actually sign up for it once you've got your Google account set up. And on an iOS, which is iPhone and iPad, same kind of thing. You go into iCloud and go to Settings, go into Find My Device or Find My iPad, Find My iPhone, and enable that there. And by the way, you, um, whenever you get ready to sell or recycle a device, 
Notice I didn't say throw away. You should never throw away. So either sell it or recycle it. Whenever you one of these devices you need to get rid of, uh, make sure you turn all these things off and wipe the device before you do that. And finally, the classic uh, use a VPN, a virtual private network, whenever you're on public Wi-Fi. I would actually suggest most of our data plans on our cell phones are, are generous enough that it's not an issue. So I wouldn't even bother with Wi-Fi if you really don't need it. You know, but if you're going to sit in Starbucks and watch a HD movie or something, okay, fine. You're probably not going to want to use your data for that unless you've got unlimited data. But use a VPN. And of course, laptops, same thing. Anytime you're on public Wi-Fi, public network, at the airport, at the hotel, coffee shop, McDonald's, wherever, if it's public Wi-Fi, you should definitely be using a VPN. Now, of course, most of our internet traffic today is actually encrypted, which is good. That's HTTPS. Almost everything is going that way now, which is good. So in that sense, it's secure, but not everything is that way yet. So it's still good to have a VPN. I would avoid uh, most free VPNs. The ones I usually recommend are TunnelBear, which is very simple and easy to use, uh, reasonably priced. ExpressVPN is very good. It's very fast. It's very private, a little more expensive. Uh, or ProtonVPN, which is the from the makers of ProtonMail. So give those a look. And that'll wrap up the list. That's the end of our tip of the week. All righty, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. I really appreciate it. If you haven't already, subscribe. That way you don't miss a single episode. And if uh, while you're there, if you can drop a review, a positive review, that would be very appreciated as well. I'm really hoping to get somebody in from uh, maybe the EFF or someone to talk about some of these you know, surveillance kind of things that are coming up. Some of these next phases, uh, the, you know, how we're going to try to deal with the coronavirus uh, that we have to watch out for. There's a lot of things to consider. I've read some really interesting articles lately, but instead of kind of getting into them here, I'm going to see if I can get someone in to talk to him about in an interview. Things are happening kind of fast these days. If you want to, you know, keep up with more up-to-date stuff, you should follow me probably on Twitter. If you've got a Twitter account, that's at Firewall Dragons. And uh, as I've said, I'm working on the fourth edition of the book. Hope to have that out by this fall. So I'm writing it now. Uh, and if you've got any feedback, if you want to give me some input on something I should change or add to the book, you can let me know at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And if you want to get some uh, kind of behind the scenes, blow by blow of me writing the book and what that's like, uh, you can go to patreon.com. And if you sign up at the right level, you'll get uh, updates from me probably every couple of weeks or so. And about to send one out this weekend, actually, uh, as I write the book. And that's going to do it for this week. Everybody, please stay healthy, stay safe, stay home. We've got to flatten this curve. We've got to, you know, give our wonderful, dedicated, brave medical health folks out there a chance to handle this without being swamped and having to make some really horrible decisions if they are. You staying home helps everybody. So where I would normally say don't get caught with your drawbridge down, you know what, just, just leave that drawbridge up right now.